proud of you guys for doing that. Um, what we've been in is a series over the past several months in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest recorded message of Jesus, teaching of Jesus, um, on the subject of what it means to live as being a part of his people. The big biblical phrase for that is called the kingdom of God, what it looks like to be part of God's kingdom people, um, the community of God's people. So that being said, we're going to jump back into the Sermon on the Mount, looking at a very famous passage today. In fact, in some ways, you might even describe it as infamous. It's one of those passages that I would say that out of the entire Bible, most people know, even if they're not a Christian or people that are not even followers of Jesus, are familiar with this passage. There's at least two passages in the Bible that people are very familiar with. One is, for God to live the world, John 3.16, of course. And then the other one is what? Does anybody know? Take a guess. Judge not. That's what we're looking at today. So it's going to be good. So anyways, if you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? We have ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. You'll need one. We're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 7. I'm just going to read the passage up front, and then I will pray, and then we'll begin to get to work trying to understand and make sense of this passage. How about we all stand? Is that cool? And we will read verses 1 through 6, Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read out of the ESV English Standard version. If you guys don't have that version, it's fine. It'll be up on the screen. You can check it out. Or just listen. These are Jesus' words. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother... Let me take the speck out of your eye, and there's a log in your own. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. This is God's word. So God, we ask you now that you would open our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, our imagination to make sense of what was spoken here. Um, God, give us new understanding of what it means to be your people and to follow you as disciples, followers, apprentices of Jesus. So we just commit this morning in your hands and we pray, God, that you would have your way. And we ask it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? Um, I thought it would be kind of interesting to begin with um, a little bit of a kind of a recap on like what what is Christianity so I thought I'd just kind of go for the big big picture here like what is Christianity um, I think how you answer that is is significant is um, enlightening because I think in a lot of ways there's been some misunderstanding um, as to what Christianity actually is and again depending upon what part of the country you live and or what type of political party you belong to, you might actually have different versions of how to answer this. And so I thought um, to just give you my take of understanding from my, my best attempt to use the Bible as sort of the baseline to try to understand this. And this is, this is kind of what I, I've come up with. So um, here you go. That Christianity is a comprehensive way of life. Make sure you get this. First of all, it's a way of life. It's actually built upon an elemental belief that Jesus is Lord. There's obviously other things that are added to that, but that's the main elemental belief, that Jesus is Lord. 
and in which the individual and or the community have the aim of, number one, being with Jesus, being like Jesus or becoming like Jesus, and then ultimately doing what Jesus did. So let me break this down real quick and we'll jump into the teaching this morning. Um, the reason why I wanted to reframe a definition for you guys to consider this is that I think in a lot of ways, modern, Western, evangelical Christianity has this idea that says if you believe a certain concepts or ideas or you have the right, I don't know, padlock or right combo of ideas or truths about God, then you are bingo a Christian. You're in. You're in the kingdom. You're going to go to heaven or whatever the case is. Um, the idea, in other words, that it's really nothing more than just having some right alignment of concepts, of ideas. And beyond that, there's not much beyond that. And what I would suggest, that that idea or ideology is fundamentally flawed. Because what that produces is people that know a lot about God, or know a lot about Scripture, or know a lot about certain even theological concepts, but live lives that are completely unlike Jesus. Or to put it in modern vernacular, they're just jerks, and they know a lot of Bible. Have you ever met that person? Right? Uh, yeah, you, 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 know that, you know that person. But the point that I would make is that that seems to be incongruent to Christianity. And that's because it is. It's, it's not the way that Jesus is about making people in this world. That, that means that even though you are a follower of Jesus, yet we will have moments where we will be jerks and we won't do things right and so on. But there's a way to realign. What I'm suggesting is that Christianity at its core is it's a fundamental, comprehensive way of life. In other words, it will radically append, overturn, transform, reshape every part of who you are as a human being. From your morals to how you think to the patterns of your life. Again, this is why I would say it's like this. We want to be with Jesus, whereas if you were not a Christian, who wants to be with Jesus? Like the, the guy that knows everything about you. You really want to hang out with that guy at the party? The one that knows everything about you? Unless you love him, unless you know that he's approachable, unless you know that he's loving or kind, of course, nobody wants to be around that guy. But as a follower of Jesus, we want to be with Jesus. We want to become like Jesus, meaning we want to begin to act like Jesus acts. And then finally, we want to do the stuff of Jesus. We want to do what Jesus did. Pray for the sick. Help those that are in the margins. Go out to those that are hurting, that are broken. Be kind and generous to those that have nothing. These are the type of people. Be forgiving to those that have uh, earned reasons to be disliked or hated or whatever the case is, but to act in a different way, to become like Jesus and to do the things that Jesus did. That's why I would say it's a comprehensive way of life that's actually built upon this core fundamental truth. Jesus is king. That's what Lord basically means. Jesus is the king of my life. So the reason why I say that is because by way of background, I think one of the things that has been revealed over the past, I don't know, a decade or so, there's all sorts of pollsters and people that have done ways, uh, these um, surveys trying to understand a little bit about what's the general vibe of Americans about Christianity. And um, there recently was a poll that was done, I think, by Barna Group. They're kind of a main Christian pollster group, and uh, they discovered that the number one thing that non-Christians have uh, stated with regard to Christians, like they were asked to you know, define how do you see Christians, and number one is we see Christians as judgmental. Now, that needs a little bit of unpacking because in some cases, 
Um, some would push back and say, well, yeah, anytime you start talking about morality or sin or putting your finger upon things where people may not want to change, then immediately it's easy to just kind of tap out with the statement, you're being judgmental on me. So that's, there is a real high probability that that can be the case. But I don't think it's always the case. Because I think, I think again, if we just listen, um, and rather than taking a defensive posture and allow our hearts to be humble and listen, then I think what we would hear is that there is a tendency that Christians can be a judgmental community of people. And I think Jesus would even affirm that, hence the teaching. So what I would suggest that Jesus is doing in this larger context of the Sermon on the Mount, again, to put the teaching of judge not, lest you be judged, in the larger context of its teaching, is that Jesus is talking to, I, at the beginning of chapter 5, what he describes as his disciples, followers, people that are apprentices to Jesus, people that are saying, we want to follow you. And so what Jesus was doing was that he was creating a community of people. So the next slide, kind of unpack this a little bit further, that Jesus built and was building this new or and or renewed community of people around himself, which he was going to be the center. So we say this a lot, that what being a Christian is, is you will radically reorient your life your morality, your ideas, your understanding, your thinking around something. For a Christian, we reorient our lives around Jesus. That's, that's what a disciple or apprentice of Jesus is. We look at Jesus, we listen to Jesus, we listen to what he has to speak, and we orient our lives around this. Now, because, again, as I continue to wrote, um, because people are complicated and messy, this community would, in all likelihood, obviously within itself, become a complicated and a messy community. So this shouldn't come as a shock to anybody that you and I um, are complicated and messy people. We have our baggage, right? You and I, we have our messes that maybe for some of us are not very, uh, maybe we're not super well aware of it. Maybe others are more aware of it than we are. Or maybe we're living in some degree of denial. Some of us have various ways on this journey where we become more aware of the fact, my life's pretty messy, um, and than others. But the point that I'd make is this, is that all of us, we are complicated and, and messy people. Now, when you get a community of complicated and messy people together, what you have is multiplication of complication and messiness. You guys following? How are we all doing? So this is, this, is what was Jesus, this is what Jesus was doing. This is what I want you to understand. Jesus was creating a new community around himself. And when you create a new community of messy, broken, complicated, sinful people together, you have this propensity of disorder or chaos. And Jesus wants to rid the world, rid our lives of that chaos, and in its place put order or peace. So what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he gives this instruction. As you come together, as you are formed, as this community of people around me, orienting your lives around me, uh, you will need tools or wisdom as to know how to deal and to react with other people. That's different or distinct from the way in which the world at large operates. So question, does our world have a judgment problem. Are people judgmental or critical right now at all in any way, shape, or form in the news, on Saturday Night Live, on Fox, on MSNBC? Do we have any form of criticalness or judgmentalism happening in our country at all right now? 
course. It's like at a fever pitch right now. And if you're like me, at some point you're just like, I hate social media. Absolutely hate social media. It's like a toxic realm that why would you even want to go into this horrible place where people are just so quick? And again, and I say people, I'm like, I'm part of that people mess sometimes. Like, that's me sometimes just being critical and angry and frustrated and judgmental and wanting to just freak out. Because the fact of the matter is, this is, this is part of who we are as human beings. But what Jesus is trying to do by bringing us together around himself is to give us a new way of operation. It's a new way of being human, a new way of acting. That's not like the toxic pathways and arenas of the world in which we live in at large. So that's what the context of what Jesus' teaching is all about here. So that being said, what I want to do is I want to begin to jump in. I want to basically ask a series of questions, three of which, and we'll just kind of unpack them one by one. So one, what does Jesus mean by judgment? Secondly, what does he not mean? And then ultimately, what are the implications for you and I as we move forward as followers of Jesus to try to embody this and live this out? So with that, let's jump in. What does Jesus mean to understand that? I thought it'd be kind of good to just look at, first of all, the main central word of this entire teaching, which is the word judgment. So next slide. Uh, We'll show you a little bit about what the Greek word is here. It's the Greek word krino. The part of speech, obviously, is a verb. It can also be used as a noun, depending upon its context. And as you'll notice here, just listen to how the descriptions are. So it means to judge, to decide, to evaluate, to hold a view or an opinion, to make legal decision, to condemn. So there's a variety of usages of this particular word. In a lot of ways, it's the exact same way it is in our English. So when we use the word judge, what, what do we mean? So to understand what that word judge means, you have to understand the context. So I, I thought it would be kind of fun to show you some photos and images, and then we can take a look at some of the ways in which this word judge or judgment can, has often to, or judge has been used within broader uh, language of English in, in and of itself. So first slide. So here's the question. What, what, is, what is this person called? It's a judge, right? So he obviously went to law school. He understands a thing or two about the legal system and all that. So that's, that's his job is to, to render judgment you know, and to be a judge. So next slide. Um, what are these called? So, so did, what law school do these guys go to? Oh, none. That's right. So it's a totally different type of judge. You get the idea. You get the idea. But they are judges. So we use the same English word to identify, describe who these guys are and what they do. They're judges, but it's a totally different type of judge. So these guys are not, hopefully, not going to be rendering like, like legal uh, standards or judgments, you know, God forbid. Um, so anyways, there's a little image right there, right on. What, what's her name? Paul. What's her name? Paula. Abdul, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she's got a little image on her chin there. Um, okay, next slide. Next slide. So what do we typically call this type of activity? Protest. can be protest, but what, another word, judgment. They're, they're, they're being judgmental, right? They're rendering these judgments to the world at large, whoever they are. God hates your feeling, and you get the idea. So the point that I would make is this, is that by and large, there are many that could look at this and be like, these guys are just being judgmental. The way they're operating, the way they're acting. It's being judgmental of not maybe in some ways misrepresenting the very gospel and the very aim of God itself. But again, here's a point that I want to make, is that the word judge or judgmental, um, across the board, you see a variety of usages of this. So in the same way, we need to ask the question, what does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge, lest you be judged? What's he referring to? And how do we understand that in the proper context so that we don't 
make misjudgments of this particular passage. So I thought it would be good to kind of look at some of the New Testament usages of this particular word judge or judgment and just read through the text and let the context of the passage kind of speak for itself. We'll make some comments on it and we'll make our way through and then we'll circle back to the main passage in Matthew chapter 7. Sound good? Is it okay? Let's jump in. Next slide. We'll take a look at James chapter 4. So James is believed to be the half-brother of Jesus. And many scholars believe that what he's doing is he's sort of uh, thinking about the teaching on the Summit of the Mount as he kind of reiterates in his mind and as he processes for his audience these types of things. So listen to how he uses the word judgment. So he says, um, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So who's his audience? Obviously, followers of Jesus. So when you read the word brothers... Uh, that's a gender-neutral term that refers to people that are part of this family of God, male, female, followers of Jesus. He says, don't speak evil against one another, family. All right? What, what's, what's the implication there? The implication is, stop it. You keep doing it. Stop it. It's toxic. It's destructive. Then he goes on to say, the one who speaks evil against a brother judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So what James seems to be implying is he's taking the teachings of Jesus and he's sort of uh, unpacking them to say, look, here's, here's what's happening here within your context. You guys are biting and devouring each other. You're judging each other and you're talking smack about each other. And it's not good. It's not helpful. It's actually destroying not only you, but also the very community with, with which you belong. And here's how he is describing, utilizing that particular word, judgment. Next um, verse to think about this, it's in the writing of Romans from the Apostle Paul. He uses this uh, passage here, again, a little bit of backstory. Uh, he's writing to a community of people that belong to Jesus, followers of Jesus, uh, in the community of Rome, ancient Rome. And what happened was when Paul went around planting these churches or creating these little Jesus communities, right? You want to think of it that way. Um, these were communities of multicultural people. Like some were Jews, which means that if you know anything about ancient Jewish customs and civilization, they had a very certain type of uh, restrictions that they had with regard to their diet, the type of clothing they wore, whether or not they were to be circumcised. There were all sorts of customs and ceremonies that they kept to. And yet what was happening was this church was becoming multicultural, which meant that there were people that were not Jewish that did not have any problem whatsoever eating bacon, right? Uh, because it's, it's amazing. And therefore, they were prone to do this type of stuff and then risk the, the, the problem of creating an offense to Jewish people that ate kosher. They didn't eat bacon. They felt that it was, it was wrong because of their Jewish custom. So what you have is this community of people. Now, that, that becomes challenging when you come together for a potluck, right? Which what early Christians did a lot of times. They came together, they ate. So you would imagine some Jewish follower of Jesus would bring some sort of kosher dish, begin to eat that, and you have somebody else they would place right next to that, you know, some sort of pulled pork dish or so, something like that. And that's, that could be offensive to some of these Jewish uh, followers of Jesus, so what Paul is doing is a little bit even further than that. He's talking about meat that's ultimately sacrificed to idols. Again, another little bit of a cultural situation that was going on. 
back, back in Rome, there were these obviously false gods that they would offer these sacrifices to. And the meat that was used to offer to these sacrifices, they would then go and sell it in the open marketplace. And it was probably discounted. It was cheap, a really choice cut of you know, tri-tip. And so there are some people that were like, you can't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. It's bad. It's like defiled. You can't eat that. And other Christians were like, it's no big deal. It's super inexpensive. Like, what's the big deal about eating meat? Like, it's, we don't, I don't believe in that idol. I don't worship that idol. So this, and again, so for some of us, we're hearing, it's like, what in the world? How does that make sense to my life? But the point, just follow the story. Remember the Bible was initially written to an audience. So as followers of Jesus, it's our job to try to make sense of that original context, and then we can derive our own personal application from it. Does that make sense? So with that being said, this is, this is the, the crisis that was happening. So Paul then goes on to write, he says, Let not the one who eats, eats the meat sacrificed to idol, uh, despise the one who abstains. So what's the temptation for the guy that has no qualms, no problems eating the meat sacrificed to idols? It's to look at the other guy and be like, you're a fool, you're crazy. What's wrong with you? Grow up, be mature. That's the mentality. And Paul's saying that mentality of disdain that's not good, because it looks nothing like Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and he says, and let the one who abstains uh, pass, and, and the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So the flip side of this argument is for those that abstain to look at the one who eats and then begin to become critical and judgmental of them. Paul's saying, look, both of these, it's not good. It's, it's toxic behavior in the family. And unless it's dealt with, on a root level, it will threaten to undermine and disrupt and destroy and bring chaos into the very community that Jesus is saying, no more chaos, I'm bringing in peace. So think about that. You and I have the potential by how we respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit to either bring chaos and disorder and offense and criticalness and judgmentalism or welcome, and peace, and order, and Jesus. So think about that, how we act. It's really important. So this is why being a follower of Jesus is not just having the right thinking about theological concepts. It's also about ordering your life in a way that's in sync with Jesus himself. So listen, he goes on to say, Who are you to pass judgment? So there's our word. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Next slide. He goes on and says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? He's talking about both of these guys. The one, the guy who's despising, who's sitting there eating his tri-tip, offered to Zeus. Another dude who's just like, I can't believe you're eating a tri-tip sandwich that was offered to Zeus. How dare you? You call yourself a follower of Jesus. You can't do those things and be eating... Tricep sandwich, sacrifice to Satan, right? So Paul's like, look, stop judging. And he says, for we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So what Paul seems to be indicating here is that as followers of Jesus... We have to deal with how we respond to each other. Because in any community, in this community, 
there are things that some of us, we feel, we might feel that the liberty to be able to do. And it's fine. And others, others of us might not. So their natural proclivity would be to become judgmental of each other or to look at another person with a sense of disdain. And what Paul is saying is that, look, you have to have a right idea of judgment. And then how do we have a right concept of judgment? So the next slide, I want to kind of move into this as we kind of bring this to a head, to a close. Um, what is it that Jesus cannot be saying? So this kind of brings us to this other thing. What does Jesus not mean with regard to this whole teaching? Then this will kind of bring us back into the text itself. He cannot be saying, number one, don't have an opinion. He can't be saying that because of what the text says, and we'll read in just a moment here. He can't be saying, just have no opinion about right or wrong or discriminate or indiscriminate behavior or morals or immorality. He cannot be saying that. Secondly, he cannot be saying don't correct sinful behavior in others because there's other passages in the New Testament that clearly identify that you, I think it's like Galatians chapter 6, if I'm not mistaken. He says, you who have been overtaken in a fall, restore such a one in a spirit of humility and meekness. As a, as a community follower of Jesus, whose lives are complicated and messy, one thing that you can know for certain when you come and join this family, this church family, or any other church family, is that we'll always be messy. There will always be means by which you will be offended. I tell people this all the time. It's like not meaning or intending to like pop people's bubble, but like, you know, welcome to Calvary Slow. Glad you are liking it. But at some point, I will let you down and others will let you down. You're welcome. Right? But the point of the matter is just simply say like, look, we are a community of messy, broken, complicated, hurting, sometimes hurting others, People, But the hope is, is that as we are being renewed by Jesus, that we are also being given tools and wisdom and shown how to use those tools that we can become agents of reconciliation. Does that make sense? This is what I'm suggesting, is that in the world today, these tools seem to be either ignored or unaware of. This is one of the reasons why you can have somebody... On, you know, again, any side, pick a side. It doesn't matter if it's left, right, progressive, liberal, conservative. It doesn't really matter. You have people on every single side being quick to pick up stones and attack the other for being so rude and judgmental. And you're using the exact same terminology and rhetoric and artillery as the other side. Do you, do you see what Jesus would say? That's hypocritical. You are literally acting Acting. That's it. I mean, there you go. That's end, period. It's the end of sentence. You are literally acting. That's what the word hypocrite means. It's like an actor. You're acting. You're acting as if you've got it together, but you really don't. Because the very standard which you use to accuse and judge and criticize others, you are literally using the exact same tools to formulate your own argument. You're just as bad as the very person that you're attacking, or at least in your actions. This is the thing. So let's jump back into the text. Let's just read through this again. And I'll make some points and we'll wrap it up as we bring some conclusions to them. So Jesus again says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you pronounce, you will then be judged. This kind of makes sense. What kind of comes around goes around. The way in which you treat other people, there's a tendency in which they will treat you the same way. Other scholars, theologians, see something even bigger than this, that God will use the same type of judgment. I'm, I'm not, again, this is one of those areas where it's a variety of ways in which this can be seen. 
And then he goes on saying, with, with, what, what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't see or notice the log that is in your own eye? This is kind of an interesting thing. So Jesus is using, obviously, hyperbole here. So I would imagine, this is one of the downsides of reading our Bibles, is that there's a lot that we just don't get or we don't see. So what we don't get is we don't get like the audience like laughter or applause because it's not necessarily recorded. Um, but my guess would be that what Jesus says here is, is funny. It's, it's intended to be funny. Like his, again, if you think of it this way, if, if I had like a stage prop of a big like two by four, I would stick that up in front of me. Or if I had my glasses on right here and I like smeared them with like pizza sauce and then I had like a knife in my hand, I'd walk up to you and be like, hey, uh, pizza sauce on my glasses. Like, hey, it looks like you got something in your eye. Let me, uh, let me use my knife here to help you out with her. And you'd be like, no, that's okay. Um, it, that's the idea. That's, it, Jesus' intention is to say, do, do you realize? Like, this is silly. You're offering to help other people and you yourself, you're completely unaware of your own flaws your own issues at heart. And so again, it can't be that he's saying, just don't ever render a judgment. Don't ever try to help somebody else out who's stuck in their ways. Don't ever try to bring an awareness to their speck that's in their eyes. Actually, he goes on to say, it gets a little bit more nuanced than that. Just listen to how he points out. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the law, log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So again, here's what Jesus, I think, is getting at, is that we, our community, as followers of Jesus, we're to be a community of people that helps each other. Do you understand this? It's not loving to just let somebody remain in chaos. You know this, right? If somebody's stuck in a sinful activity or sinful proclivity or to see them acting in a way that actually continues to bring this recycling of brokenness and hurt and pain and sinful actions into a community, it's, it's not loving to just let that go. Um, there's ways in which we just simply describe that as enablement. That, that's not good for the community. Or if you're in a marriage and one party in that marriage is regularly, consistently doing things that are actually disruptive to the shalom, to the peace in that household. It is not loving for a spouse to let that other spouse go on acting in those ways in which they're doing it and just say, I'm just going to be a faithful spouse. You're not being faithful. You maybe think you're faithful. Let me, let me, let me, let me take two steps back here. i got to tread carefully on this because this can open up into the realm of abuse and other forms of activity. What I would suggest is you have to think of it this way, that it is helpful to confront others. But there's a way to confront that's disruptive and destructive. And there's a way that's able to confront that is actually a means to bring about help. And this is what I think Jesus is driving at. He says, look, sometimes we've got to confront these things. Sometimes we have to deal with the speck in each other's eyes. But before you can do that effectively, you have to be aware of your inability to be doing the very same things. I think this is what he's driving at, is that for this community to work, to work well, to flourish, would be the phrase, to be fruitful, requires an attentiveness to ourselves, to our own proclivities. First, seeking the Holy Spirit's help, and then beginning to help each other out. 
This seems to be what Jesus is saying. And the final thing I want to read, this little passage here, a lot of scholars see this as a little bit of a disconnection, meaning it's not part of the actual flow of the passage that we just read here. Um, others do, so I'll just read it, and then we can, you can decide. Uh, it says, Do not give dogs what's holy. Do not throw pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So you can understand why some would say this doesn't seem to fit with the overall flow because on the one hand, Jesus is saying, hey, don't be critical. Don't judge other people. And by the way, don't give good stuff away to the pigs and dogs. That sounds like, wow, that sounds like Jesus like went um, back on everything he just said because he sounds pretty critical right there, like to call people hogs and dogs. Like, that, that's not cool. Um, again, this is where it raises the question, like, what in the world is Jesus talking about? And there's a lot of different interpretations on this, so I'm not confident I'm going to give you the absolute 100% right one, but this is how I, I think it's kind of being unpacked here. And I say this oftentimes, that, you know, anytime I teach anything, don't take anything I say, like, as ultimate. Like, oh, do the research yourself. Study scripture. You know, that's why we have internet. You can always, like, dig deep. And you guys are called to be researchers and students of scripture as well. It's, you know, but here's, here's how I think what is being unpacked here uh, means. So here's my thought on this. The phrase um, dogs and or pigs um, is a New Testament, uh, first century euphemism. Um, it can be used in derision, used in a way of uh, condescension, but it can also be used as just a term of uh, description. So for example, there was a phrase in the early first century called you know, Hebrew or um, Gentile dogs, the phrase Gentile dogs. And that was a basically a way of describing non-Jewish people, people that were not followers of Yahweh, people that were not part of the inheritance of God's people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, people that were non-Jewish. They are Gentile dogs. The phrase, the idea of pigs, swine, gets a little bit more complicated. Again, we're not absolutely certain exactly what this means because there's not a whole lot of other new, uh, either New or Old Testament um, um, verses to kind of correlate this to. But the idea of a pig, because it was unkosher, unkosher, Jews would not eat pigs. They would not raise pigs. Um, there's probably a pretty strong likelihood that this is a reference, again, to non-Jewish or Gentile people of origin. So here's where the argument typically goes, somewhere like this. That like, don't, don't give what is sacred, which is the word that he uses there. Don't give what is holy. So what Jesus is doing is he's treating the message, the gospel, the good news, um, with the same degree of sacredness as objects in the temple. So in other words, what Jesus is doing is he's raising, elevating the value of this message to such a high degree. And I think at this point right now, we can just even think, so what, what degree do we value the gospel? And it's just, again, one of those like, um, I don't know, inventory passages you can think about in your life. Like, what degree of value do I place upon the, the good news, the gospel of what Jesus has done for me? Is it just news or information that I tuck away back in my head and I think about every once in a while? Is it news that radically impacts me every single day as I think about it and consider it? What degree of value is placed upon the gospel? Because Jesus obviously is saying look, the, the gospel, the good news, is of such incredible value that you don't just go around giving it around indiscriminately. You be, are careful. And again, this is what some scholars would believe, that the idea of giving, not giving it to the dogs or the pigs, in this context, is probably a reference, perhaps, to saying, don't go give this to the Gentiles yet. 
Again, the word yet is, is an addition. It's read into the text. Again, I, I realize that this can be a little bit tricky. But here's the point that I'd make is we know that first and foremost, Jesus comes into this world in fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, you can say this, that Jesus was the Jewish Savior. But we know he's far more than that. We know that because of this little book called the Book of Acts, as well as other books that kind of put together the rest of the story. We know that Jesus has come into this world not just as a Jewish Savior, but as a Savior to all the nations, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, all flavors, all colors. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what background you are. doesn't matter what knowledge you have of God or what ignorance you have of God. All are invited to trust Jesus and be transformed. So we know in the book of Acts, uh, there's a pivot that happens that the gospel then begins to move from just simply distinctly Jewish territories to then go into all the ends of the earth. There's a a very clear distinction that happens throughout the book of Acts. So some scholars believe that what Jesus is probably saying, possibly saying here, is that don't give what is sacred or holy to the dogs and the pigs, lest they turn and trample you underfoot. And at some point, again, like I said, this, this would change, where the gospel would then begin to go outward to all nations of the earth. So that being said, I thought it'd be good to just wrap it up on a handful of conclusions or thoughts or closing thoughts to consider. So with that being said, what can be or what are some of the implications for us? So here's five things that you can just think about, consider. Number one, uh, to be self-aware. And here's what I mean by that. To humbly identify your own proclivities to sin. Uh, Take every thought captive, is what Paul would say later. This is kind of what I would describe as being aware of the two-by-four that's in front of your eye. Um, Again, this is insanely insightful to the human condition. Here's what I mean. Have have you ever noticed that it's really easy for you to identify the the flaws and faults of other people and yet be strangely blind to your own? And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's because you're still blind. Like, so you need someone to help you out, right? Um, if you need help, get, get married. That'll, that'll go well. Um, get a roommate. Uh, so that's, that's all that will then begin to un- unpack. All right. The point that I would make is that we, we have this inability really to be aware of our own stuff. We tend to think the problem is always somebody else. Well, if you didn't act this way, I wouldn't have gotten so mad. That's what we say. That's just, that's manipulative, straight up. So if anybody, like, throws that on you, just, like, throw it back at them and be like, nope, mm-mm, that's manipulation. You're the problem. You got to deal with your own stuff. So self-awareness, I think, is an important thing to just be aware of. Um, but again, it's, it comes through humbly identifying your stuff. Um, if you need help with this, again, we, I would even suggest that all of us need help with this. Um, what I would suggest is invite somebody. This is, this is a little bit scary. So for some of you, you're not, you're not here yet, but at some point you, you may be. What I would suggest, invite others into your life. It could be a spouse, it could be a roommate, it could be a family member, somebody that you trust, that you know. Let it be, make sure it is somebody within that realm. And then ask them, hey, could you do something for me? And what I'm looking for is I'm looking for another set of eyes to help me see things that I'm not able to see. What's my tone of voice like? When I talk, that come across condescending. When I'm on Facebook, when I comment on stuff online, do I, do I come across as arrogant as, it, as that guy that's a jerk or that girl that's a jerk? Do I come across as that person? 
because I don't want to. And if I do, I want to have eyes that maybe sees it in a different light. That's, that's being self-aware. That's humbling because at some point you might get answers that you're not ready or that you don't want. But this is, again, part of that process of learning to deal with your stuff, to identify the plank that's in your eye so you can then go on and become a thriving, fruitful part of this community that Jesus absolutely loves, called the church and gave himself for. Um, Secondly, believe the best and look for the good. Just makes sense. Believe the best, look for the good. Um, Here's what we typically do. We believe the worst and look for the worst, right? I think that's our natural bent. I know that's definitely, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but that is my natural bent. I like to tell people I am a recovering critical, uber-critical person, right? Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting to me because I've, I've spent many, many years, I'm 48 years old, spent 40, I don't know, somebody probably this account for like two years where I had no idea what I was doing. So for the past 46 years, I've fine-tuned my skill of being critical of everybody, all right? I can out-critical you anytime. And so here's the thing I've, I've come to realize, like I, I can identify uber-criticalness in people just by the way they look. So I'm like, I, I know that look. I see, I know that look. I, I've perfected that look. I created that look. I get it. So the point that I would make is this, is, is uh, recognize that this is something that's part of who we are, and Jesus wants to shift it. Uh, that's what Paul would write about later on in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love believes all things, hopes all things. That this is what love is. The opposite of love is just constantly expecting the worst out of people. And in any community, you cannot thrive like that. If, if in a community, you're, everybody's always just expecting the worst out of everybody else, setting their standards so low that immediately just leads into criticism, you can't thrive like that. Nobody succeeds in circumstances like that. So believe the best, look for the good. Uh, thirdly, guard against suspicion. Again, this is another big one. In some ways, I'm just like, I, I tore out you know, a page of my journal and putting it up on here. Like, guard against suspicion. I, I can be the most suspicious person. Like, I can even remember as an early Christian, I began to study a lot and read a lot and think a lot and listen to Bible studies a lot and educate myself as much as I can in the Christian faith a lot. And, and as a young Christian, maybe like late teens, early 20s, I remember going through this phase of like, I, I know a lot. I know a lot more than most people. And I remember having this like arrogance that just led me to become very critical of everybody, like super critical of everybody, and then becoming suspicious of everybody. And that world is so destructive and so isolating and so ruinous, not only to your own soul, but also to the community that, that we're called to be part of. So suspicion, I would suggest, is, is actually really destructive. Now, are there Obviously, legitimate things to be concerned about. Absolutely, of course. But can suspicion become something that lays a hold of your heart, controls you, that bites you, destroys you, devours you? Absolutely. I think there's a way in which we can walk in a, in a pathway that hopes all things, believes all things, loves all things, and yet at the same time walks with this degree, this manner of discernment that's not controlled by this overwhelming agent of suspicion. Uh, fourthly, Remember how it feels to be judged. Now, this just makes sense. Have you ever been in a place where somebody read into a comment that you posted online and be like, I can't believe you said that. And you're like, I, didn't, I actually didn't say that. Like, like, I didn't even, that's not even what I meant. Maybe what you should have done is like, ask me. Hey, you wrote this, X, Y, Z. Is this what you meant? Like, it would be helpful. Like, I, I like to just say, like, like ask, 
clarifying questions before you jump into a rage of just judging other people. Remember what it's like to be judged. Have you ever been in that place? Remember what it feels like to be unheard, to be unlistened to. Again, this is just simple, standard stuff to just think about, that when we go about our lives, live within the community of Jesus' people, that these just these make sense. It's nothing crazy. And then finally, remember Jesus or consider Jesus. Here's what I think about with regard to Jesus. So again, Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh, come into this world, to come into this world to address the issue of sin and rebellion and destruction and distance between humanity and God. He is the one human being that has never, ever sinned, judged falsely, judged wrongly, judged ineptly, never done any of this wrong. He literally, you can put it this way, he is the sacred thing, the sacred reality made flesh. And we as human beings, we've turned on him. We are the dogs and the pigs that have turned on him as human beings. And we've lacerated him to the point of death, even death on the cross. And to the degree that we see that Jesus, even in the midst of being judged himself by fallen, sinful, plank-eyed humanity, still prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he loves us to the point of death, even death on the cross, as Paul would say. So to the degree that we see that in spite of how often we wrongly judge, and we don't even have a righteous leg to stand on, compared to the fact that Jesus has every right to judge, and he has a righteous leg to stand on, and yet New Testament says, for I have not come into this world to judge the world, Crino, but to save the world. Jesus' mission was something other than just simply castigating, casting off, dismissing, even allowing sin just to fester. His aim was to deal with sin in a way that lovingly preserves the sinner. Tim Keller would put it this way, and one of my favorite quotes of him, he just says this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. We've got we to pause and think through some of these. To be loved is, but not known is comforting but superficial. So many of us, this, this is where we live. Like this is what social media is all about. It's promoting an image of myself that others are like, oh my gosh, you're amazing. Like how amazing were you to be able to drink that latte at such a great coffee shop and watch the sunset. Whoa, your life is amazing. And like, to, like the, the fact of the matter is you may have been embittered. You may have been just doing something horrible. You may have just committed a horrible felony, whatever. I mean, the point of the matter is, is it doesn't matter because we have this image and other people look at us and they like it. Like, share it. The point of the matter is in our minds, we think I'm loved, but totally unknown. Tim Keller says that's just superficiality. And that's where many of us, we live our lives. We think that people have accepted us, but it's just a superficial acceptance because this leads in the next one. To be known and not loved, that's our greatest fear. We always dread this thought that what, hap- what would happen if I am actually found out? What would happen if the mask 
that I am constantly putting up just drops or fractures or falls apart or comes undone? What happens if I have no strength to even hold that mask up anymore? I'm going to be found out and then alienated and abandoned. And Tim Keller says that this, this is our greatest fear. This is why we put up masks. This is why we project ourselves as being beyond or greater than what we truly are. Because we are desperately afraid of being abandoned. But then he goes on to say, but to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. Because it is what we need more than anything. And I would suggest to you is that Jesus knows everything about you and I. He knows your thoughts. He knows your actions. He knows what you did last night. He knows what you thought about doing last night and didn't do last night. And yet, none of this has put him off to the point where he has abandoned you. Instead, he's pressed in to give himself away entirely to you and then invites you to come to him. The one who has every right to judge us because he knows everything but he withholds, and instead he takes upon himself our judgment, our brokenness, our pain, and lets us go free. That's the love of God. That's what we're invited to not only see, but to receive. And not only see, but to receive, but to let it radically terraform our entire existence, the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we feel our emotions, all of this to radically reshape us as we reorient our lives around this Jesus who also happens to be the king, who also happens to know everything about you, who also happens to know and love you more than anything you can imagine. So there you go. I don't know where you're at. I don't know the circumstances you're going through or what you're facing or the types of emotional baggage or challenges or hardship or struggles that you carry, but my hope would be that you would see the depth of God's love through Jesus and respond to that. So why don't we all stand? We're going to sing, partake of the communion. We come to a table. We are reminded that it's at that table. One of my most favorite images in the end of the Bible, book of Revelation, is this image of the future state. Guess what it is? It's a party. It's a, par- it's a, cel- it's a feast. Massive table with people from all around that were being invited. That's amazing. A bunch of people that are not worthy to come and feast are invited to come and feast. That's what salvation is like. It's being celebrated in spite of the fact of how broken we are because Jesus bore our shame, our guilt, our sin, and is wanting to rewire our hearts and reorient our lives around him. So my invitation to you would be for you to invite Christ to continue the work in your heart that he wants to do, that it maybe for many of you he's begun, or maybe some of you it's stalled out, or maybe some of you it needs to be picked back up. To come to the table, to come to Jesus, to turn your hearts to him. So let's pray, we'll sing. I'll be up at the front, I'll be happy to pray with you. I'll have some other leaders up in the front, would love to pray with you as well. Let's just respond. God, thank you for your love, and as we respond to you now, God, receive our worship, our praise, our brokenness, our messiness, 
and make something good and beautiful out of it.